Morning, Sobble family. Happy Dad's Day, everybody. I want to start with a question right out of the chute this morning, and the question is, uh-oh, okay. man down. We're okay. The question is this, how many sins does it take to be a sinner? How many sins does it take to be a sinner? I've asked this question several times in church settings. The usual answer is one, that it takes one sin to be a sinner, but I think the most correct answer is actually zero, that it takes zero sins to be a sinner, and it takes zero righteous acts to be a saint. It takes zero sins to be a sinner and zero righteous acts to be a saint. We're born in sin and we're reborn a saint. We're born sinners in Adam. We're reborn saints in Christ. We're born sinners in Adam without doing a single thing wrong. We're reborn in Christ without doing a single thing right. Now, having said all of that, I think you can make a case for one, that it takes just one sin to be a sinner. It's just that it wasn't your sin, it was Adam's sin. And it takes one righteous act to be a saint. It's just that it wasn't your righteous act, it was the righteous act of Christ. We're born in sin. All we have to do is show up. <laughs> just be born. Just, you just show up on planet Earth and you've already got a problem. We're born in sin in Adam. We're reborn in Christ. We're born in Adam, and we got to get in Christ. we got to get out of Adam and into Christ. And that is something that God does. And God does that when you and I say yes to Jesus, when we invite Him in to be our Savior. We're born in Adam and we need to get in Christ. It's something God does when we say yes to Jesus. Let me read a couple of verses. Uh, the Apostle Paul, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he kind of comments on this that we're talking about. And he says, For he, that is God, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. We're born in Adam. We got to get in Christ. It's something God does when we say yes to Jesus. And he takes us out of Adam, places us in Christ, takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and places us into the kingdom of his dear son. Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you invited Jesus in? Have you experienced what Paul describes as the forgiveness and the freedom that Jesus brings into a life. Have you said yes to Jesus? If you haven't, let me encourage you to do that. With, with every fiber of my being, let me encourage you to say yes to Jesus. If you haven't done that, you can do that today. In fact, what I'll do after this talk, I'm going to pray a prayer It'll just be a simple prayer. If you, want to, if you want to say yes to Jesus, invite Jesus in, experience the freedom, experience the, the forgiveness of Jesus, you can do that. There will be nothing magical about the words that I say, but if it kind of reflects uh, what's in your heart, you can pray along with me. And, and we'll do that at the, at the end of the talk.
Last week, we looked at a couple of verses also from Colossians chapter 1. I just want to look at those again just for a second by way of review, and it's Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God, in all His fullness, remember, His DNA is love, right? So God, in all His fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. So you look at Christ, you're seeing the fullness of God. You're seeing God's DNA in uh, in flesh, in human form. This is the God who looks like Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. And through him, that is through Christ, God, look at this, reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That's important. God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to sin. He put an end to depravity. He put an end to disintegration. He put an end to conflict. He put an end to violence. He put an end to division. He made peace with everything, reconciled everything by way of the cross. It's like Jesus on the cross absorbed all of the sin, all of the corruption, all of the disintegration, all of the division. He absorbed it all in his body and through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, it's like he recycled that into uh, forgiveness, into new life, into reconciliation, and into peace. Reconciled everything, peace with everything, but we don't see that, do we? We look around us at the world and we don't see that. We don't see it manifested yet as fact. Last week we asked a question and the question was this, if God has solved the the depravity problem, the disintegration problem, the decay problem, the conflict, the violence problem, then why is there still cancer? Why are there still pandemics? If God has solved the sin problem, the depravity problem, why is there still division and violence and conflict? If God has solved, remember Matiotes, we talked about that last week, disintegration. If God has solved Matiotes, if he's solved disintegration and decay, why am I standing before you here in a state of decay? And I am. I checked again this morning. Uh, It's totally happening. There is a gap. There is a gap, an interval between what Christ did on the cross and what is being manifested right now as fact. There's a gap. There's an interval New Testament scholars have a name for this. They call it the now, not yet. The now, not yet. It's a, it's a paradox. It's, it's something that we hold in tension. You see this now but not yet paradox uh, all through the New Testament scriptures. There's an interval between what Christ did on the cross to reconcile everything and to make peace with everything. There's an interval between that and what is being manifested right now today. When Jesus died on the cross, Paul is careful to say that he reconciled all things to himself. From God's perspective, 
This was virtually instantaneous. When Jesus died on the cross, virtually, instantaneously, Matthias is brought to an end. Depravity, sin, corruption, violence, division, all brought to an end. You see, God lives forever, right? He has always been. There has never been a time when God has not already been. He is eternal. And so to him, this now-not-yet interval is infinitesimally small. It's virtually instantaneous from his perspective. But from our small, finite human perspective, it's taking a long time, right? It's been 2,000 years. And who knows, it might be 2,000 more. For all I know, we might still be in the early church. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that a thousand years is like a day to God. So it's been a couple days, right? Might be a couple more. Might be like a long weekend. See, the the followers of Jesus in the first century were absolutely convinced Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. We've been saying the same thing now for 2,000 years, which is like two days to God. We might be saying it for 2,000 more. I don't know. It's a a difference of perspectives, right? So what's our job? Well, our job is this. Our job in the midst of this now-not-yet moment is to reflect and to manifest the now in the midst of the not-yet. So our call as followers of Jesus is to manifest the now of peace in the midst of the not yet of conflict. We're to manifest the reconciliation of the now in the midst of the not yet of division and racism. We're to, we're to, manifest, um, we're to manifest the now of the light in the midst of the not yet of the darkness. We're to manifest the now in the midst of the not yet. The Apostle Paul makes it a really interesting statement about this paradox, this, uh, this tension of now but not yet. It's in Romans 16 and 20. And Paul says these words, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a, that's a fascinating statement. Satan is an absolutely defeated foe. Satan was utterly, thoroughly, completely defeated by Jesus at the cross. But in this practical, now, not yet interval, God is using the foot of the church to crush Satan in this now, but not yet moment. And how does the church do this? With God's peace. As we, the followers of Jesus, as the church of Jesus wage peace. We are crushing the enemy in this interval, this now but not yet period of time. We're called to be a people who manifest the now in the midst of the not yet. The most basic, the most basic way to manifest the now is to be people of love. Forward together in love. 
So we want to talk about love. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've for sure heard a sermon on love. You've probably heard a sermon series on love. Maybe you've heard multiple sermon series on love. Love is a theme that cannot be overemphasized. It's a theme that we don't get it all the first time through, and we don't get it all the tenth time through, and we don't get it all the, uh, the hundredth time through. Forward together in love. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that it is by this one thing, this one thing, it's by our love, that people in this now but not yet interval will know that we are followers of Jesus by our love. People will know that we are followers of Jesus by our love, not by our politics, not by our opinions on masks, not by our opinions on vaccines, not by whether we believe in a pandemic or a plandemic, not by what it is that we're opposed to and against. It's not by our church attendance. It's not by whether we worship in person or whether we worship online. It is by our love. That's the one thing that Jesus says people will know that we are his followers. That is not to say that those things are unimportant. That is not to say that those are issues that we should not discuss, even discuss discuss vigorously, even debate vigorously, that can be helpful, it can make us all better. But here's the thing, it is the commonality of our love for Jesus, the commonality of, of Jesus who is the very essence of love, it is our commitment to Jesus at the center that creates a love that flows out of us for each other, that creates a unity that is so strong and so powerful that it can bear the weight of all kinds of differences of opinion about matters that are of secondary importance. I just got off on something there and I lost my notes. What do people think of when they think of Sobel Church? Here's what Jesus would say. Jesus would say that our community, when they talk about Sobel Church, what absolutely ought to consume the conversation is our love. Our love for each other and our love for all others. That ought to be the thing that absolutely consumes the conversation because there is nothing more foundational, more basic to being a follower of Jesus than to be an outrageous and passionate lover of people. And there is no theme in Scripture, as we read the entirety of Scripture, there's no theme more basic and more fundamental in Scripture than the theme of love. So in this series, we want to talk about love, we want to talk about what it is, how do we do it, what does it look like, how does it fit into the various uh, circumstances of our lives and our My hope is that we can, uh, in this series, get really quite practical. And so we're going to use, as our our anchor text, we're going to use 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is probably um, the most famous passage about love in the Bible. It may well be the most famous passage in all of literature, um, sacred or secular, Some of you may have had this passage read at your wedding. I know John and Margie, you had this passage read at your wedding, which was one year ago today, by the way. Happy first anniversary to to those guys. Let me read the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, just an irritating piece of religious noise. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. We're not going to spend a ton of time in the first three verses, except to say this, that we have got to let the weight of this priority land fully on us. We've got to grasp this. Paul says you can have the gift of tongues, even tongues of angels, and that is a wonderful thing. But if you don't have love, it's zero. You can have prophetic gifts. You can understand God's secret plans. You can be an expert in prophecy. You can be an expert in eschatology, you can, the study of end times events. And you can have, you can have your eschatological um, doctrines and beliefs so well formed and, and you can articulate them so clearly. You could have them lined up in little rows like so many toy soldiers. You could be so smart, you've got Andy Stanley phoning you every day just to get your insight, your opinion, your thoughts on scripture, and, and just to, to, to help out. You can have faith, incredible faith, but if you don't have love, if it's not done out of love, if it's not producing love, if it's not fueled by love, done for the purpose of furthering love, Paul says it's nothing. It has zero kingdom value. You can give your body as a martyr. You could do good deeds every day, all day long. And if you don't have love, it's nothing. We have an awesome church building here. And for those of you who are participated, uh, whether financially or physically or prayerfully, in, in putting uh, this project together, it's awesome. But here's the hard truth. This building is a waste of time and money if we are not great at love. We could have a, we could have a thousand people trying to, to get in here this morning. We could have 10,000 people trying to, to get in here this morning. 
We could be so incredibly good at everything what we do as a local church that we could, have, uh, we could have the editors of Christianity today just knocking on the door, wanting to come in and to know everything about our programs and why we're so awesome. We could be like the most awesome church in all the world. They could commit a whole episode, a whole issue just to us because we're that amazing. We could have the rockingest worship band. I really enjoyed the worship this morning, by the way. Thank you, guys. But we could have the rockingest worship band. Now, maybe rockingest is not the word that you would use to describe your preference uh, for worship. I was chatting with the staff this week, and uh, we were talking about worship styles and preferences and music. I like my worship music loud. I like to feel it like thumping physically inside my chest. I like my worship experience to be kind of aerobic and kind of sweaty. It should also be kind of a workout. That's my preference. That's maybe not your preference. Maybe you like hymns. Well, we could have the reincarnation of Fanny Crosby here uh, this morning who could lead us in a wonderful hymn sing. Maybe you like 70s worship. We could have Bill and Gloria Gaither in their prime. They're like 135 years old now, but if they were in their prime, we could have awesome 70s worship uh, in here. Or if you like it loud and sweaty, uh, we could have Elevation or, or Hillsong United or, or whatever. But you know what? We could have the very best of whatever genre you like. But if it's not fueled by love, if it is not producing love, if it is not being done for the purpose of furthering love, it's nothing. It accomplishes nothing of kingdom value. Love is that much of an all-or-nothing thing. But we don't often think of it like that, do we? And so over the next uh, several weeks, we want to emphasize this. Because if being a follower of Jesus is about anything, it's about being an outrageous and passionate lover of people. If we become really great at love, Paul says, and James says, and Jesus says, we fulfilled the whole law if we become great at love. But here's the thing. If we don't become great at love, it doesn't matter what else we do become great at because it's nothing. It accomplishes nothing of kingdom value. This theme of love is um, it's Christianity kindergarten. And it's Christianity graduate school. And everything in between. Now, some might say, certainly none of you, but one or two might say, really, like a sermon series on love? That's so basic. That's so simple. Like, can't we have something that we can really sink our teeth into? Can't we have something more doctrinal? Can't we have something that's a little bit more complex than love? And if, if somebody, had, if, if that was an objection of, of one or two people, perhaps, I would, I would enter, I would sit down and have a conversation and would entertain that objection as long as they're great at love. But unless and until we're great at love, this is where we have to begin. It's... it's it's not optional as we read through the pages of Scripture. The church, and I'm not just talking Sobel Church, but the church in general, is to have the same reputation 
that Jesus had. That makes sense, right? This is the church of Jesus. The church of Jesus ought to have the same reputation as Jesus. It's his church. What was the reputation of Jesus? The reputation of Jesus was that he was an outrageous lover, a lavish lover of people. He was the kind of lover of people that made him attractive to prostitutes and scummy tax collectors like we talked about last week and to uh, disreputable sinners. Is that the reputation of the church? Are we known for our outrageous love? Are we, do we have the same reputation as Jesus? If so, then the church ought to be a place. We ought to have whatever the 21st century equivalent of first century prostitutes, tax collectors, and disreputable sinners are, whatever that is today, they ought to be flocking to us. They ought to be flocking to us, just like they flocked to Jesus. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the disreputable sinners flocked to Jesus, but they ran from the Pharisees. They flocked to Jesus because they just felt his, uh, his, his affirming worth in them. They ran from the Pharisees because they didn't want their judgment. They flocked to Jesus because they just felt his worth and his love. What is the reputation of the church? I, I don't claim to know the reputation of Sobel Church. I've been like on board for like two and a half weeks, haven't got that figured out yet. But let me just talk about the church in general. I think the church in general uh, is not known first and foremost for its outrageous love. I think the church in general is known for its judgment is known for being condemning, is known for uh, what it's opposed to and what it's against. I think the church in general is known for its moralistic crusades. I think it's known for um, um, our, our condemnation, being thought police, being moral police. I think the church in general is perceived of in a lot of different ways, but unfortunately, one of the ways that we're not perceived is that of being outrageously loving. I think the church um, as a whole, again, as a whole, has a spirit of Phariseeism. And the prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners ran from the Pharisees, just like they're running from the church, but they flocked to Jesus. We're to have the same reputation as Jesus. And we've got to turn this around. Like, we have to. It's it's not optional. We've, we've got to do this. We've got to get this love thing nailed down. And so our starting point um, is, you know, you, we're going we're gonna to be in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look through that. Paul has done a, like, it's a masterpiece uh, of him telling us what love is. But as I look at that, the thing that stands out to me most is what's not there. And what is not in uh, that description that Paul gave was the very thing that our culture generally says that love is, and that is that love is a feeling. Paul never describes love as a feeling. He describes it as a lot of actions, a lot of deeds. He describes it as a commitment, but he never describes it as a feeling. 
And yet our culture does, and it gets us into all kinds of problems. And that is where we'll pick it up uh, next week. So I hope you come back. Come back and bring a friend, um, and we'll talk about what, what happens in our lives and in our culture when we look at love like a feeling. Well, we're going we're gonna to close uh, now, and um, I want to invite any of you who would like to pray to, uh, to come on up after the benediction. I'm going to read a benediction. But if you've got something on your heart that you would like to pray about, um, I'm going to pray in just a second. And I said I would pray and give people an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. If you pray and say yes to Jesus, I'd love you to come and just say, hey, you know what? I just, I just said yes to Jesus. I would, I would just love to encourage you and, and even pray with you. Maybe you've got uh, something heavy on your heart, uh, something f- family, something physical, uh, whatever. We, w- we would love to pray uh, with you. I want to close by reading... Um, some verses from Romans 15. This is kind of a benediction of sorts. It's Romans 15, verses 5 and and 6. And Paul says, May the God who gives patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then, All of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. If you want to say yes to Jesus this morning, just pray along with me as I pray. Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross for me. And that not only did you absorb all of the sin and the corruption and the disintegration and the conflict and the violence, but Jesus, you bore my sin, all of my mistakes, all of my guilt, all of my shame. And Jesus, right now, I want to say yes to you. I want to invite you, Jesus, into my life. I want to experience your freedom and your forgiveness. Jesus, clean house and move in. Give me that new start that you promise. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, let me say welcome. Welcome to the family of God. I would love for you to just come and say, hey, I said yes to Jesus. I invited him in. Um, For the rest of you who want to come and uh, pray, please come. Everybody else can just kind of uh, head out the door. I don't think it's raining. I think it's a beautiful day. Uh, Spend some time catching up with each other. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming. Have an awesome day.